This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, June 29th, 2019. We are uh, coming at you live from the internet, from uh, Google Hangouts, which will shortly be going away, and so we're going to have to perform an emergency switch to some other broadcast method. Now, I, I, I want to reassure you, because I know that you are used to, that, that you have built up a fondness for the technical issues that plague every single episode of this podcast, thanks primarily to Google Hangouts. And I know that when I tell you that Google Hangouts is going away, you feel bereft, maybe even panicked, that you are not going to get your weekly dose of technical errors. So I just want to reassure you that there is no doubt in my mind that whatever gremlins have infested Google Hangouts for the last four years of the show will undoubtedly follow us to whatever platform we move to and that you, our audience, can expect the same hapless high quality that you have gotten in the past. The quality of this show will not diminish. Having said that, Dornell, how was your week? Hey, man. My week has been pretty rough. I'm on call at work. But you made me think about those gremlins, those those technical problem gremlins. What if, hear me out, what if the geek gab is a spiritual ritual for us and our listeners where we get to purge that accumulated negative energy, those gremlins? We get to purge those technical difficulties so that we may have a successful and glorious week. What do you think? So you're saying that just by listening to Geek Gab, folks ensure that the rest of their week is peaceful and trouble-free? That's the ticket. I believe you. I, I think that is eminently sensible. Now, I, I've got a question. When you say you're on call, I've been watching Scrubs again. Okay, sue me. Uh, I like Scrubs. Uh, it's a when good you show. Say, <laughs> when you say you're on call, I'm presuming you're not on call like doctors are on call. Uh, right, not not quite the same. It's it's similar. Uh, it just means that if uh, I don't have to be at the office, but if uh, something comes up where our service, which is you know running 24 hours a day, if the service goes down, I'm the guy who needs to uh, bring it back up. So that's all it means. It just means that I'm the emergency contact for some stupid software sitting in a data center somewhere. Now, I'm only laughing because of two things. One, I, I have been in close proximity to three of those events myself on major internet services. I was there the day that AOL went down for the significant length of time, uh, and they were scrambling to try and fix it, and we got called just a million billion times. Uh, and I'm also the guy who crashed eBay twice. <laughs> How did you do that? Um, they had an aging database software at the core of the site. Literally the original software that was written to store and process 
uh, auctions and stuff. And I, in order to get around certain restrictions and some processes, I used the software in ways that were not anticipated by the original creator. Uh, in ways that that brought it to a screeching halt and uh, caused an outage on eBay. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I'm not saying I caused all the technical issues on Geek Gab, but I am saying that if you were collecting evidence, that you would find plenty of evidence that I have jinxed large scale. Online. And, 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 and I think that's part of the reason why we don't use uh, webcams on this show is so that the audience can't see the dark cloud hanging over your desk. <laughs> the demons running back and forth in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we invite our guests? To <laughs> uh, we, our guest doesn't really need much of an introduction. He's been a, a good friend of the show and been on a few times. It's uh, Alexander from Kursova Magazine. Welcome back, bro. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. Uh, so, welcome to your weekly ritual uh, of cleansing technical difficulties. So, I hope that the rest of your week has been difficulty-free. Uh, it's It's been a pretty good week, yeah. Now, we were talking before the show. Uh, I was saying I'm out of the loop, as usual. Uh, this is I'm, I know I, that makes me an amazing host, but <laughs> but I just found out the other day about this uh, this cool thing that you're producing. I even went up and looked cool photos on it uh, that I might use as our thumbnail for the show, so that people know what they get when they're clicking on. And I saw a, an illustration of a guy like a Indiana Jones style adventurer with a revolver uh, pointing it at a couple of dinosaurs like raptors. And so that sounds yeah, awesome. Yeah. See, that just yeah. already makes me want to read it. <laughs> right? I just been flipping through these photos, and I say, yeah, cool fantasy stuff, fantasy stuff. All right. Indiana Jones fighting off hungry dinosaurs. All right, I'm in. What is going space on dinosaurs. with you? Is it space dinosaurs, too? Yeah, they are, they are uh, a alien race of dinosaurs known as griefs. They are kind of like Tyrannosaurus rexes, only they have the ability to uh, camouflage themselves, turn invisible, and they have empathic and mild telepathic powers, which uh, become quite a problem when they get their hands on a piece of alien technology that's meant to speed up certain evolutionary paths to prepare the way for invasions by a particular alien race known as the Marzanti. What on? I, I only understood about a third of that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty gonzo. Like I said, you, you have to go to stuff like Gardner F. Fox with the scope of Jack Kirby's Fourth World type stuff to get anything even remotely comparable to the, to the world and setting of Wild Stars. Wild Stars. Um, who writes that? Uh, Michael Tierney. He is the owner and proprietor of the two main comic book stores here in Little Rock. Uh, he's got one in Little Rock and in North Little Rock. The one in Little Rock is also celebrating an anniversary this year, this June. It will have been open for 30 years. 
and he has been working on the Wild Stars for the better part of 40 and then some, but he, he uh, tracks the anniversary, the 35th anniversary, to the first official publication, which was the Ehrlich comic, which was a black and white indie comic from the uh, black and white boom. And that one came out in 84. Holy cow. Uh, th- that's amazing that he's been, he's been doing that for 40 years. Is is it one of those things where it's like this guy's D&D setting or, or whatever, or is it something that... Uh, it's just really his passion. I mean, he's been working on it for ages. The, the early Wild Stars comics are actually adaptations of books that he wrote back during the the 70s pulp revolution those books ended up uh not being picked up by editors so he decided he would uh adapt them himself into comics and that's where the 1984 Ehrlich comic and the 1988 first marker comic have their origins as, as adaptations of previously unpublished novels Wow, um, this is becoming a thing for you, isn't it? You're you're you've been scouring uh, IPs for unpublished works that you can get back out there. Uh, to to an extent, yeah. I, we recently did the Lee Brackett Stark project that's been coming out this summer. That's that's been a lot of fun. Uh, we put out three volumes in the form of like Japanese light novels with illustrations by star two. And each volume had forwards. Uh, one was by Nathan Housley, the pulp archivist. We had one that had a forward by Jeffro Johnson, who everybody here knows. And the most recent one that came out black Amazon of Mars had a forward by Liana Kersner. Oh, that's amazing. Um, it, so that's a fascinating backstory on on Wild Stars. Um, tell me about your role in it. Uh, well, it kind of got started uh, a couple of years ago when I first started doing Kursova. I'd been talking more with Michael because he was one of the local businesses and wanted to see if he was interested in just filling up some free ad space in that first issue. And he's like, yeah, sure, sure. And when he actually saw how, how awesome the first issue was, he kind of wanted in on it. And so we ended up buying a couple of his stories. The first story of his that we bought was Shark Fighter. And uh, <laughs> I, Sorry to interrupt. I just I love that name. Are, yeah, yeah. Every, is everything he writes that awesome? Uh, yeah, yeah. Not all of it is the sort of stuff that Krasova would run with. He writes some stuff that's a little bit spoofy. Uh, we actually did run one of one or two of his, his like sort of little drawl pieces in a couple issues. But he he does a lot of stuff that's Gonzo science fiction and just weird cool stuff too. But anyway, we. Uh, we kind of got our publishing history established with him when we published Shark Fighter, and then in 2017 when we published his Bears of 1812 story, which is about Sacagawea, the bears that Lewis and Clark brought back to the White House, and the ensuing supernatural disaster that having bears taken from the American West brought upon our land. And in 2018, he asked me if I would be willing to 
do sort of a special release because he finally started working on his Wildstar stuff again. And that was Wildstar's 3, Time Warmageddon, which was the novella that we released last summer. And uh, you did a, was it an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter for that? Uh, we did a Kickstarter for that one. Part of what we did with that was use that as a way to clear out some of the vaults of some of his older Wild Stars stuff. He jokes about how that was one of the best sales of his Multiversal Scribe, which was a fanzine that he put out from the 70s. And he wasn't able to really get much distribution on it the first go because he ended up having to move. So he, he kind of lost his audience then when he moved. So we, we got a bunch of those into, into people's hands as well as the, the new Wild Star story. Because, see, I, I paid for the whatever the ultra deluxe um, level was that uh, got me one copy of everything. I was like, it, did, look, you, did you get your copy of everything? Yeah, I do. I've got it sitting on the bookshelf awesome. behind awesome. me. I, I was like, look, if I'm going to read one thing in this series, I'm going to, I want to start and read. All of it. So yeah, yeah, I was in for that, <laughs> and it's it, it's awesome too because it's a it's written books and uh, comics, and uh, has he has he done anything else at any other? Uh he, well, he's outside of the Wild Stars. His latest big productions were the Hundred Year Edgar Rice Burroughs Art Chronology through Chanel and Gray which is another local Little Rock publishing house. It is four monstrous hardcover volumes that have reprints of every scrap of art associated with Edgar Rice Burroughs properties all the way back from his earliest pulp appearances up to the last couple of years of the stuff that's been coming out in comics, like the, the Dynamite Comics stuff, everything. I mean, it is... There is nothing like this out there. there the, the largest collection and republication of extant Edgar Rice Burroughs artwork out there on the market. And while working on that project, that's, that's sort of what led to us ending up publishing Young Tarzan and the Mysterious She back in our spring issue this year, because... Michael kind of had an in with the estate from working with them. And plus he'd had this scrap lying around for several years that Danton Burroughs had sent him to, to finish. It was an unpublished, unfinished fragment from the jungle tales era. And he said, well, since, since I'm kind of hot off the heels of doing this one Tarzan project, what do you think of this thing that I've been working on? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to get my hands on this. What will it take to get my hands on this? And that, that's how we ended up working to, to publish Young Tarzan and the Mysterious She by Edgar Rice Burroughs and Michael Tierney in our spring issue with that fabulous, fabulous cover by Anton Oxenich. Um. Let me ask a question. Does he have uh, still any of those back issues and stuff that you're going to be offering uh, or that you would be offering on this uh, Indiegogo? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's still got a small, small handful left of the comics from the 80s. We moved a lot of those in our last uh, Kickstarter, uh, but we're making a few of the last of those available. We're making a few of the multiversal scribe that he still has copies of available we are making available the 0102 comic run 
And just so people know, the 80s comics and the 0102 comic run are what make up Wildstar's Book One, Book of Circles, which we are uh, reprinting in the new edition. We are also clearing out the handful that we have left of the first printing of Time Warmageddon, because unlike what we normally do, we just did a one-off printing of those and kind of struck the plates at the end. So all that Michael had in his store is all that's left. But we're making a few of those available through this for anybody who wanted the first printing that had the uh, cover by Tim Lim and the the spider cover by Mark Wheatley, and also a few of the hard covers that are left. We're making a few of those available. Now, the difference between this printing and the printing from last year of Time Warmageddon, this is going to have a new cover by Mark Wheatley. It's going to have the two Wild Stars uh, short stories that Michael published with us in Kursova, Bears of 1812 and Shark Fighter. And it's also going to have a new previously unpublished Wild Stars story, The Grim Grip. Sounds cool. I, I love these names. I can't, I can't get over these names. This is, you know what this reminds me of? Those stupid internet jokes where someone tries to say, wow, ninjas, pirates, LOL, random sort of thing. Only this guy's been doing it for 40 years. He's, yeah. he's the, it's actually original. He's really just putting wacky stuff together and it, it sticks. Yeah. And We've talked about some of the, the cool and crazy wild things that, that the wild stars have in it, but the central premise is that Earth is only now returning to its previous uh, spacefaring era. There, there had been previous spacefaring eras of Earth before, and the wild stars were led by an immortal being... Uh, who's only remembered as the ancient warrior because his name is lost. He was from another universe that was destroyed. He came to our universe. He ended up uh, gathering together some of the scattered remnants of humanity. And they led uh, one of the last exoduses from Earth to the stars 75,000 years ago, right at the fall of Atlantis, right as an alien invasion was about to destroy earth. These fishmen from outer space had sent this weapon down that would spark the evolution of the fish and the horrible monsters of the deep to, to create these sort of monstrous fish creatures that would, that would uh, become the dominant sentient race on earth. And so before that could happen, uh, the ancient warrior took with him a bunch of the, the humans into space, and th those uh, space colonists became the wild stars. And so you have the spacefaring humans who are, who've colonized worlds. They've got their own wars, both with the fishmen and with this race of wolfmen known as the Brothen. And the, the first Wild Stars book, uh, the one that the comics uh, assemble to tell, is 
about how around the same time that Earth is finally going to make contact again with the humans who made the exodus, a race of wolfmen have teamed up with one of the renegade wild stars. They're going to destroy Earth. They're going to launch a comet into Jupiter. They're going to turn it into another sun. It's going to explode. It's going to destroy the Earth. And while you have all that going on, you also have alternate timeline Nazis. It's, of course, necessary. Yeah, of course, you have to have alternate timeline Nazis. You have to have the alternate universe son of Adolf Hitler <laughs> trying to help these these space werewolf men and this renegade wild stars destroy this Earth as punishment for for the collapse of their timeline. Wow. Wow, it, we, our yeah. villains, our villains aren't evil enough. We need to bring back the Nazis. Let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> love it. Oh, and what so, a, go ahead. So this, uh, the the newest book, Wild Star Rising, is both a prequel and a sequel to the previous Wild Stars adventures because this is the first time that it actually looks back the seventy five thousand years into the past to the Exodus and the fall of Atlantis. But it also looks forward to where the ancient warrior is finally able to execute his plan to try to rescue his beloved from her prison at the center of a supermassive black hole. And so he brings a sailor from ancient Earth with him into space forward in time like, look, you're a great sailor, so you're going to help me sail the stars and pilot this thing into the heart of a black hole so, you, so we can rescue my love. So that that's the new story right there. I tell you what, I wish I had the guts to write crazy stuff like that. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Like the the pitch. Hey, I just dreamt this really weird. Like when a friend tells you about a weird dream, and you go, "Yeah, all right. That that was a weird dream. Yeah, don't don't tell me that ever again." And and he's just he just goes, "Eh, screw it. Let's put it on paper. This is awesome." Yeah, and uh, you'll be able to get the entirety of that dream, 700 pages in a gorgeous table, coffee table hardcover, where it's going to have a uh, cover by Anton Oxenuk, who anybody who's familiar with the last several issues of Krasova knows just how awesome his stuff is. And is that the one that you've got on the Indiegogo right there? The uh, th Those are by Mark Wheatley. Okay. Uh, those are uh, the one with the shark is going to be the cover of the volume one, and the one with the guy with the gun at the dinosaurs is going to be volume two. Okay, okay, that's amazing. Um, I, I'm loving all this artwork that you've picked up here. Yeah, and uh, speaking of artwork, we've got some some uh, four color prints that we've made of the dinosaur eating the. Pirate Queen from book three and the time travelers fighting from book three as well. Those are both by Mark Wheatley. The time traveler battle is, this is the first time it's been offered in color. It was one of the black and white illustrations, but we didn't use it for, for a cover. The, the red grief eating the pirate queen was uh, the back cover of the version that had the Tim Lim cover on the front. Okay. 
Yeah, Tim and Tim Lim's got that distinctive artwork. He he's a comics guy. He did the uh, thump the president yeah, rabbit yeah, thing. That's really cool. So, how did you get together all these great artists to do these covers? Uh, it's well, a lot of it has been Michael. Okay. Because when when we uh, when we did. Wild Stars three last year. Michael said he'll he'd take care of the art and stuff, and I was sort of working for the just doing the Kickstarter, making sure all the layout was done, getting promotion. And so the way I got paid was we did a split, uh, sixty six thirty three on whatever I could make off the Kickstarter, and he got the lion share to help pay for the art from Mark Wheatley. And we're doing something similar to that again. Great. But he, he's, he's been in the comics industry for so long. And he has so many connections. Uh, he could get some pretty big name folks on the horn, which is one of the reasons why we have Mark Wheatley working on this. And Tim Lim for us is a hometown hero. We both shop at the same comic store. He'd been shopping at Michael's comic store before he even was even thinking about doing comic stuff so he he's known michael forever oh that's so, great that's great I'd, i had no idea he was a local guy yeah yeah so i i end up kind of meeting tim through through michael's work oh that's cool and uh, that reminds me of actually i've got a question for from the chat we're gonna go back into business raindrops and chat Wants to know how well your uh, Tarzan issue sold. Uh, the Tarzan issue was probably one of our best-selling issues. I think we moved somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 copies. Holy cow. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, a big part of that was Michael also got a lot locally. We did the, the local signing event, and we sold almost all the ones that we had locally. Plus, uh, the the Burroughs estate wanted their own box to sell. And plus, we had our own uh, sales and stuff. So, so it did really well. It was kind of a loss leader for us because uh, we're, we were we're trying to adapt to the changes in print-on-demand indie publishing. Amazon getting rid of Create Space was just a huge, huge blow because. Amazon is, it's cheaper to print through them than it is through Ingram Spark, but you can't have anything set up for pre-order through Amazon. The, the way it would work through CreateSpace is you could set your stuff up and resellers could have access to it at, at a certain point, but you didn't have to make stuff be live on Amazon to sell it which gave you a window to actually print up copies, mail them out, get them fulfilled, and then get them listed on Amazon. But we aren't able to do that anymore. Now, if you want to print something through Amazon, it's just, oh, are you ready to print? Well, bam, it's live on Amazon right here and now. And the fulfillment process is just way more tedious than it was through, through CreateSpace, so... Well, that's a shame. So what's what's the future of indie publishing right uh, now? Right now, I, I, I think it's... As much as I hate to say it, it's probably going to be a mix of getting stuff 
listed using Ingram Spark, using Amazon for your ebook stuff, and you're not going to be able to find any reliable one-stop shop for anything. That's too bad. That's too bad. And is anybody else setting up a their own press, such as uh, Castelia House in Europe, or uh, does Superversive do their own publishing, or do they use the Ingram Spark? Uh, I I don't know anything about their publishing methods. Uh, Daddy, we're big talks with those guys all the time. Are you asking me if I know what they do to publish books? Yeah. Do they have, do they have do they publish their own books, or are they just a an imprint for indie publishing i have no idea all right we don't know someone in the chat may tell us but in the meantime that's that's interesting that's too bad one one thing that, I, that i'm learning though is you know the they always talk about the the 55 percent like oh retailers will pick up your book if if you mark it down 55 percent retail discount no no they really won't all that does is just eat into whatever profits you'd make because amazon and barnes and noble they just pick up the content and will put out orders they're not going to miss any money and it doesn't cost them anything to list stuff on that uh ingram content service provides so give yourself as good a cut as you can if all your sales are going to be coming through Amazon anyway, if you if you set a better retailer discount than the minimum that'll get get you get you listed on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, you're just handing money to those corporations. So, got it. Um, you, it's funny you mentioned retailers. It, brick and mortar retailers are, are in a really bad spot right now. Yeah, I I was in a local bookstore uh, that just opened up recently here in uh, in the great Pacific Northwest. And as kind of a troll and also to support my buddies, I tried to get some of some of my friends' books listed. So, so I asked, hey, can you can you stock uh, steampunk books by John Delarose, for example? And it turns out that that they can't do any independent publishers. They can't do Amazon published stuff, print on demand or anything. Uh, it turns out that that even though it looks like an independent bookstore, it's basically limited to certain publishers that that they can uh, order from. Which I don't know what that tells you, but it it tells me that nobody's put any faith in these sorts of services. If you can print on demand cheap enough to get it at a bookstore for a reasonable retail price, why wouldn't you stock it? Right. Yeah. Well, and of course, there there's the question of returnability, and it hasn't happened to me, but I've heard horror stories where some indie author like sets their retail price and said it is is returnable, and the next thing they know, some stores bought a carton, dumped it, and they they're at a loss for all those returned copies because nobody actually bought their book. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess that's a big part of the the publisher model where they have it's to dangerous. Be to, yeah, and the thing is, is, is Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble says that they'll they'll get you listed if you jump through all the hoops. But part of the hoops is the fifty five percent discount for retailers and returnable stock. And even then, there's no guarantee that they'll do any promotion for it and it'll just sit there on a shelf it'll rot and die they'll send it back you'll have lost the money and they'll say oh well your book didn't sell well, there's no reason to stock it anymore 
there's no reason to stock the next one. Oh yeah. That's so, awful. That's awful. So right now, I think my advice to anybody who's doing indie and self-publishing, focus on Amazon and Barnes and Noble's web stores, build up your audience, sell stuff through there, get yourself as good a cut as you can. Sounds good. That's a tough business. It is. Uh, how do you feel about it? I mean, it's is is it something that you could even do as a day job? Uh, I, I'm not someone who'd be a great person to ask for that because I'm going to work <laughs> close to be able to make it a day job. I'll, I'll just be happy when we're actually having a profitable year for a change. That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's something that you love. It's not. Uh... It is. It's. I do it because it's a lot of fun. It's. It's fun getting the stories out there. It's fun actually having a quality product. To be like, look, this is something I made. This is something that I put out, and having people be like, oh wow, yeah, that is really cool. And there, there's sort of a a validation element to it. And yeah, it would be amazing if it actually made some money for me. And I wasn't able, I was able to, to get it to where it was self-sustaining. Self-sustaining right now is, is the big goal. And sometimes I think we're getting close. I think that if we could just, you know, grow our readership a little bit more, get a little bit uh, more people and sites to take notice of us and what we're doing, we could at least get to the point where the magazine is able to pay for itself. So let me uh, let me ask a question: Is there are there structural issues preventing you from reaching a bigger audience? Uh, like maybe I mean, there may be some structural issues, but there's also personal bandwidth. You know, if you're spending all of your time actually doing the physical assembly of projects and the actual project management, that doesn't often leave you with enough time to devote to the necessary marketing and PR to actually grow that audience. So one of the things we're looking at doing is trying to bring someone in as a PR consultant or just a PR agent who can handle things like getting ARCs to people, getting press releases to people, just growing the exposure. I have a, I have a follow-up question. Uh, oh, our, our illustrious authors hanging out and chat with us now. Uh, but I wanted to ask, since this is, the Geek Gab has transformed itself, you see, we are now a show about stuff we love. So uh, besides what you're doing with Crusova Magazine, or, or is there anything else about it that you are passionate about? What What do you love uh, I just love the stories. It's just so much fun reading the stories and bringing the stories to people. And uh, that's actually Michael Tierney there in the chat. If you have any questions for Michael about Wild Stars, yeah, I mean my main my main questions are where he comes up with this stuff. I know that's sort of a hackneyed <laughs> interview question, but uh, that's that's crazy. That's that stuff's so wild. Yeah. I mean, and just being able to get a look at stuff like that, you know, if I wasn't doing what I was doing, I wouldn't have been in the position that I was to 
be one of the first people to read a lost Tarzan story, you know, much less publish it. So there are other compensations besides monetary. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's it's fun. You get to you get to meet and talk to a lot of people, and you get to actually see what's going on in sci-fi short fiction. There's a lot of really cool stuff going on right now that I think not a lot of people have heard about. In part because you know reading reading is something that takes time. It's it. And it takes effort. It's not the same as sitting down, just playing video games or watching TV or binging something on streaming. You actually have to take the time to sit down with something and commit to it. And there's so much good stuff out there. And I think that there are a lot of people who just don't take the time to commit to finding and experiencing what all is out there to enjoy. So I think in that regard, we do compete a lot with other forms of entertainment. Oh, for sure. Uh, I think what uh, what kills it for reading, as enjoyable as it is, it can't deliver those dopamine hits that you get from stupid mobile games and uh, you know your MMO Skinner boxes and so on. Yeah, yeah, and and when you do get them, it's it's because you you've uh, you've actually put the effort into it, like. Like, if I'm reading Thomas Burnett Swan, like I'll get that dopamine hit when a monster girl shows up. It's like, oh, yeah, finally the monster girls are showing up. Cretan bear girls. Here's the thing about um, brick and mortar. And the reason they're failing is pretty much the same reason that the comic industry direct market is failing. In fact, I think I've put together a couple of things listening to different authors over the last couple of years. And I want to tell you what the comic industry has done because it's so insane. And uh, the book buying or the book selling industry has does the same thing. Back in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, they had uh, romance and war comics, and they sold insanely well. It wasn't just superhero comics. Uh, they sold them to housewives. They sold them to you know veterans of World War II and other people, adults. Yeah. Uh, and they sold in, frankly, just insane numbers. And then a new generation of editors came along who only liked superhero comics and only wanted to focus on superhero comics, so they killed them all off. And so that huge revenue source went away. But they were still in, like, every single... Uh, convenience store, every single grocery store, every single drug store would have a spinner rack of comics. Kids could come in, pay a quarter, pull a comic off, read it, throw it away. They were intentionally disposable and they were uh, printed on the cheapest of newsprint. In fact, they began as a way to use up this cheap newsprint. So they were making a lot of money from there. But then they had a brilliant marketing idea. One female executive at Marvel had a brilliant marketing idea, and they called it the direct market, where instead of putting comics in every single store in the world so anybody could wander in if they were interested and pick up a superhero comic, they only sold to specialist comic shops. And so 
all of that other stuff in stores that I grew up with just went away. And so they lost all of those other customers, casual purchasers of comics who might have picked up, you know, one a comic a month or one comic every couple of months. All that money thrown out on top of all the other money already thrown out. And then because comic stores uh, had... Um, because comic stores were a beholden to a few different distributors, the comic books, the comic book writers, comic book editors got really, really lazy, and then they brought wokeness into it. And so comic sales cratered. And the more comic sales cratered, the more brick and mortar stores went out of business, thus making it nearly impossible to turn it around. So they have engaged in a 40-year campaign of driving, of throwing away customers, of throwing away money. And finally, we're at the point where they care more about wokeness than they do about making money. And as a result, everyone is suffering because when brick and mortar goes, uh, then that means the indies have a very hard time of selling. Uh, a shrinking market makes it harder for everyone to, um, to make money. And you look at comics, it's just whenever a genre or uh, a specific field of, of endeavor, comic books or novels or movies or whatever, becomes known for crap to where, you know, instead of like, 10 decent films and, and one true stinker uh, or however much, you know, a healthy uh, ratio is, as soon as it starts getting unhealthy to where most of it is crap, people start reading, stop reading, and you go down that spiral. And we have long since hit that with uh, literature, science fiction literature in trad pub, uh, science fiction and all this other stuff has long since hit that. So the only vital uh, and growing and exploding success is on Amazon for what Nick Cole calls kind of trash um, because they pump it out in large qualities, quantities. People have a lot of fun reading it. And so the writers, if they can continue making a novel every month, everything's exciting. Uh, readers will keep on reading it and you can grow readership that way, whereas if you go to TradPub, you can't because TradPub has systematically destroyed uh, people's taste for traditionally published novels because they know that the vast majority of them are trash. Not just bad, not just poorly written, not just bad stories, but actually insulting, uh, condescending, mean, snarky, uh, debauched, um, and that's happening to TradPub, it's happening to magazines, it's happening to comic books, and uh, things are coming to a head for a lot of those all at the same time, it seems. Yeah, it's, it's a tough market, and you're also seeing, of course, the, the TradPub eating itself with its big name authors like the the recent debacle where everyone's decided now it's all John Scalzi's fault that the Hugos are ruined. 
I don't know. If oh, really? I saw that. <laughs> I did. I missed that. How did that happen? Uh, the the logic goes that John Scalzi tossing his hat in the ring for fan writer as a professional author some ten odd years ago uh, was a violation of the spirit of the awards in the fan category, and that eventually led to the sad puppies and rapid puppies who were following the letter of the rules, but violating the spirit of the fandom. And so now you have the woke people who are saying, yeah, it kind of is Scalzi's fault. We need, we need, uh, we need better representation in fandom. We had uh, Cameron Hurley with her big to do over it. If I were a cynical man, I would say that they just found the excuse they needed to unperson, or, or they don't say unperson now; they say cancel to cancel John Scalzi. Yeah, yeah, and the, it's you'd be hard pressed to find a guy who was more one of us, one of us than than John Scalzi in in the trad pub world. Well, he's had plenty of success, so I I don't I don't shed a single tear for for whatever happens to him now. <laughs> I just I think good. It, it's just a lot harder on indies on small people to grow big because there's so much junk in the way that it's hard for people. At the same time, the number of people publishing books and other things has exploded. Uh, and so where it used to be that you were a needle in a haystack to be an author, uh, published in the trad pub, let's say in the 50s or 60s, you were a needle in a haystack. Uh, nowadays, you're like one needle in uh, 100 million haystacks. Um, and yeah, and one of, the, one of the biggest issues that's happening now in, uh, in indie pub is that Amazon has changed the way things work again. Everybody finally thought they figured out the magic spell of how to work the algorithm and make it work. And then Amazon went and changed it on everybody. Now there's almost no promotion of books that's not from sponsored books. You hardly ever see any of the whole customers who bought this also bought this, or customers who viewed this also viewed this. You hardly ever see any of that organically anymore. We've had titles that have broken into the top 100 of their categories, but we've never seen that boost of the alleged algorithm finally kicking in the way it's supposed to, the way that, that it did just a couple of years ago for some people. That's uh, that's short-term thinking on Amazon's part. Uh, because you're, you're, instead of going for sales on books, you're going for ad money. Uh, yeah. And, and that's short-term You're having to also compete with Amazon's own publishing houses now because they, they've got several of their own imprints in every conceivable genre category. So it's it's a tough time. There, the market is there in a way that it's never been before, but it's it's starting to contract in certain ways as the business models, I think, are changing for the worse. Yeah, we're going to, it's going to take a while, but the Amazon's going to be the 300 pound gorilla for a while. It It's clear that Bezos's intention, intent, I should say, is that Amazon be the one place where you go to shop for everything. Yeah. And it's, it, it, something's, it's going to collapse under its own weight, I hope, uh, if it doesn't catch the ire of 
any governing bodies who may actually have the power to break it up. But I, I don't see I don't see the will to do that yet. So it's something that we're going to have to deal with, uh, no matter what you're selling, any yeah. any sort of retail business, you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Amazon as a marketplace is one thing, but as Amazon becomes a creator and a retailer of its own products, which in, kind of in a way is what happened when they decided to kill CreateSpace. They, they wanted it solidly under their own branding. And it gives them more control, but it also gave uh, publishers and authors a lot less options, a lot less flexibility. And it, it doesn't feel like a serious publishing tool for people who are trying to handle it seriously as a business. It, they make it seem like the same as like listing your junk on eBay or listing your own junk on Amazon. It's, oh, you have a story. Just fill out this form and upload it and we'll, we'll dump it in the marketplace. It, it's, it doesn't offer the, the necessary tools for people who, who have plans for what they want to do like there's no way to roll out things and there's no there's no way to even be sure when you're able to get your your uh book on release like you you have no control over the day you can hit the on button and some poindexter behind a computer can say oh i found this thing like the little dongles on the f are just a little bit too far off the margin so you're gonna have to resubmit the files and by the way since it was a weekend you have to resubmit on monday and you're already three three days behind on your release schedule so it's things are getting harder i think for for anyone who's serious about indie publishing and self-publishing and it's um. a shame we're skating towards the end of the show, and this is going to be a big can of worms, so I just want to mention this without sparking a big discussion. As soon as Amazon becomes a notable publisher, in, in, in addition to being a marketplace, that has the potential to bring upon them a lot of um, scrutiny as far as antitrust goes. So, Yeah, it's going to be a while. Pardon the interruption. I'm having a. We've got our technical malfunction. There we go. <laughs> so no. let me ask a question. Do you have any ideas about how to get around Amazon? Amazon is making a lot of moves that seem to be in its best interest now, but which cause a lot of um, problems for sellers and which may actually be. Uh, not in Amazon's best interest in the long run. Um, so is there any options or any strategies to get around their, their decisions on these areas? I mean, the, the main thing to do would be to diversify platform wise, except the problem with that is every platform that you try to diversify to, that's more effort that you have to make. And a lot of times it can be diminishing returns. One of the reasons why Smashwords fell in, in decline so much is even though the, the conventional wisdom at one point was put your stuff everywhere, put it on Amazon, put it on Barnes & Noble, make sure it's on Smashwords. Smashwords had such low returns for people for the amount of 
effort that, that putting their stuff on another site had. And when Amazon started offering special deals for anyone who would exclusively distribute digital content through them, it just stopped making sense for a lot of people to use Smashwords. And so the conventional wisdom ceased being to to diversify on onto Smashwords and other platforms. But I think we may be heading towards where that becomes necessary again. And I wish, I wish, I wish that Ingram Spark was not so overpriced in what they had to offer. Like they're one of the few places that has not only shipping and handling, they have a handling fee on top of that. So so small orders become even more expensive, even though their their per page rate is already more expensive than if you were printing through Amazon. So like one one book, a hundred pages through Amazon would cost six bucks and that includes shipping. One book through Ingram Spark shipped to one person, that's almost ten bucks, including all their shipping and handling. But it does give you access to their content providing service which does populate your stuff out to a number of platforms which is something that amazon and going exclusively through amazon doesn't do so it's 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 devils all around it's it's not six one half a dozen another there are just so many different things that you can do but so many different ways that it can come back and bite you in ways that you may not expect. So it's it's really hard to find what works out there these days. Let me let me make a prediction. Um, the increasing complexity of the market means there's going to be a premium placed on uh, people who can deal with that complexity. It's going to drive indie authors into uh, recreating their own publishing houses because they're going to need somebody who can manage the business, who can manage all this complexity, who can, you know, every moment you spend learning about all this stuff is a moment that you're not writing or whatever. And so there was, there was some virtues to the publishing system. You had people who were specialists and a lot of things that authors didn't themselves necessarily have to do. And so I think that as, as Amazon makes it harder and harder, sooner or later, you're going to have to see some people deciding, you know what, I need someone who can just deal with this exclusively and I'll, you know, pay them a percentage or whatever. And you'll see some of that New York um, infrastructure uh, start to be recreated because it'll be necessary. Yeah. And the big thing that I think is going to be hard for anyone who's doing stuff independently is people who can handle the marketing and PR because getting, getting stuff in front of people is one of the hardest parts of doing any of this, finding platforms, doing layouts, covers, connecting with writers, connecting with artists, all of that is easy compared to the marketing and sales end of making all of this work. Let me ask you a question. When you do a search for something on Amazon, does is it showing you the, the sponsored results and the non-sponsored results? Is it still showing you um, honest returns off the search engine? Or is it uh, kind of um, biasing search results towards its own publishing houses? Uh, it Well, just the very nature of sponsored 
search results means that the the results are going to be biased but there's not really any way of knowing just how biased the non-sponsored results are because of the 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 sponsored results I and mean, you you'll you do a search search for something now you'll get the first five sometimes even a page of stuff that's just ad sponsors on amazon and not what you're looking for you can type in the exact name of what you're looking for and you'll sometimes end up with stuff ahead of it in the sponsored results that's absolutely nothing what you're looking for are the sponsored results at least on topic i mean if you do a search for like space marines do the sponsored results are they actually space marine books or are they just pitching whatever Oh, well, we can we can find out right quick. I'm on I mean, Amazon. I'm searching for Space Marines. We, we only have a few minutes left. I, that, I guess that's an interesting uh, interesting experiment for the future, just to monitor to see if Amazon is actually harming consumers, uh, harming sellers by serving them results that have nothing to do with what they want to read. That would be a big, big problem for both readers and writers. Well, um, I just searched Space Marines. On the top bar, there is a list of four books that are lit RPG and not science fiction, apparently. They seem to be fantasy. And then the top two results are sponsored results below that. And then you finally get to Space Marines Warhammer toys. Oh, boy. But in fairness, one of the two sponsored results is Warhammer Space Marines. That's fair. That's fair. But there are still five things listed that do not have that are that are not Space Marines. It's it's a bit of a mix. That's a that's a terrible terrible situation for Amazon because it makes the site less useful and makes people. Um, less likely to use the site yeah all right that's, uh, that's that's amazing yeah i i speaking of the business i do want to wrap up with a comment from the author michael tierney who's been hanging out in chat uh he's he said he's been a direct market retailer for 38 years he does fine because he doesn't rely on marvel and dc he says quote i carry a monster back issue selection at both stores of the time proven good stuff that, that's also been a trend uh I have heard about from commenters or people in the know it's like stores that are succeeding are those who stock back issues that people actually want to read and buy interesting in preference to the new stuff that's just awful um we are we are almost exactly out of time we're the best that's why that's the <laughs> best uh alexander anything else you want to talk about today uh i'm Nah, I'm good. It's it's been a lot of fun. It's been a blast. Be sure to check out the Indiegogo. Uh, we need to try to move a hundred sets. You got it. We got your link in the description for anybody who's listening. We're checking it out on YouTube. Uh, uh, please check out that uh, that Indiegogo. At least for the amazing artwork that uh, you guys put together. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for hanging out. And yeah, uh, thanks. Thank of course. Uh, thanks for hanging out in the chat, guys. Uh, uh, particularly the uh, the author Michael Tierney. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Is it my turn? Is it my turn? Is it my turn? Daddy Warpig, it is your turn. 
Alrighty. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks everybody uh, who participated in the live chat. Thanks to everybody in the future who will be listening to this show. By the way, those of you who are wondering where you where else you can listen to this show other than youtube.com slash geekgab, that's youtube.com slash geekgab. You can also get the show on the iTunes store, on the Google Play store, and on soundcloud.com. Subscribe to the show and uh, consume at your leisure on the platform of your choice. We, your hosts, are leaving you for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.